0: Warning, the following broadcast is not approved by your teacher, university, politician, or government. Side effects may include skepticism, better reasoning skills, liberty,
1: peace, and an escape from the woke.
0: Welcome to the show. I am your host, L.B. Muniz, and this is the Been Awake Podcast for Better Sense Making. You are within the sound of my voice and you haven't visited beenawake.com and subscribe with your email address go do that right now please if you happen to look on youtube at this episode and be like huh he's streaming this 24 hours past the premiere date it's because i recorded yesterday with james gentleman the blackbird podcast that's out behind his paywall right now and uh yeah, you know did was doing chores the rest of the day, and then just didn't uh, didn't have it in me before a, a busy week of work to sit down and do another episode. So we're doing it today because I didn't want to go another day without giving you guys what you need. And of course, the reason why you come to this show is for better sense making. This is the Been Awake Podcast for better sense making, after all. So in the episode description, I talked that I kind of said today is going to be a bit of a Twitter sandwich and so because we're going to talk we're going to start and end with some of the tweets that i sent out since my last episode which you can find in my weekly twitter round and my, my weekly roundups are sent out via um are sent out via the call uh, whatchamacallit's my sub stack you know that thing that the thing that you should sign up for if you listen to this and you haven't already please and thank you if you're watching this live on twitter welcome watching this live on youtube thanks I'll be uh, paying attention see if anybody's in the chat. If you have some questions, I will definitely get to them at some point during the show. We're gonna get to some of the comments, the, some of the pieces and everything that I wrote. but you know, more, most, most recently, I um, there's been a few instances. There, uh, there's been a few instances where like I find myself criticizing institutions outlets publications people whom i had previously looked to for guidance in this sense-making journey right of trying to understand the world around us as best we're able understand how that comes to us in a thing we call the news you know what's happening and what's what i'd like to say before i get into any of the criticisms that i'll address in in the in throughout the show is that's not actually why I started uh, my outlet. Like I didn't really I didn't really <laughs> come into I didn't I didn't start binawake.com to criticize the LPMC, the Libertarian Party Mises caucus. I didn't start my show to take shots at Reason editors like Robbie Suave, Ron Bailey, Reason magazine as a whole, f- the Foundation for economic education fee. I really you know guys like Brad Palumbo who 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 have come on the scene recently um what and uh, Hannah Cox who does the you know the new based-politics.com I I really didn't um part of it I guess is this media game right where you know we're all we're all vying for attention but the but I wouldn't be I wouldn't be offering the criticisms that I do or I wouldn't be taking the twitter shots that I have been if I didn't believe them and so I, I, I don't know it's it's like this weird thing where suddenly I find myself I find myself almost at odds with places that I would previously go to and and sources that I would previously go to for analysis and I don't think that's because I've been I've changed all that much. I've changed some strategic and tactical elements about how I present the ideas that I believe and the ideas that I espouse. I think it has far more to do with the way that their coverage isn't, meet, you know, in the case of the media outlets, isn't meeting, isn't up to the task of what we have coming next over the next few years. And of course, it's not up to task for people who want to be free. See, libertarianism has kind of been one of the areas you could go and have some sort of intellectual heft behind you if you thought freedom, liberty, was important. Constitutional conservatism as well. And even the progressives have their own idea of what freedom is. It's just at odds with the type of freedom that that, I, that I'll that i talk about. The type of freedom for the people who I think are, would-be, people who would stand beside, beside me, beside you. Th- there's a difference in the way the communists talk about freedom. This, this this lesson was uh, one I had to concede in an arg- in arguments and discussions with a good friend of mine, right that the Communists have their own idea of what freedom is and the progressives by extension and the socialists as well. AOC th- believes in freedom but that's not the freedom that I'm that, that I that I talk about or what I think what I think the this the mission of this project is to do. And I, I guess you could say then, that in some cases, with some of these creators, and in um, different movements, that perhaps they don't have the uh, they don't have the same they don't have the same idea of freedom anymore that I that I thought they did. And since you can't look into people's hearts, you can't really answer whether that's something that's changed or always been that way. I think it, in general, you know, you can meet it out at an individual level. And I also should make a separation because I kind of conflated the LPMC with um, with like Reason magazine and Fee, and and there's a there's a difference there because because the, as we're going to get into what the post libertarian moment is about is kind of recognizing some of the shortcomings of the way that we talk that we've talked about freedom and liberty in uh, you know throughout the course of perhaps the 21st century or as I trace in the piece right can at least be traced back to Ron Paul's 2008 campaign. So the first thing, so we're just going to kind of run through some tweets before I get into the sections of the post-libertarian moment defined, which of course I've been kind of working my way slowly through the essay on the show, a little bit at a time, one or two sections on each episode as a way to kind of cut it up. If you want to watch fuller episodes of me talking about it, you can check out uh, Lines of Liberty, the Picanona show, where I've talked about both of those things. So the first tweet that I have in front of me here I'm not going to put it up on the screen really because it's it's a little bit quick. But this was a couple of weeks. This is from the 10th of January when the teachers were you know, teachers in Chicago decided they didn't want to teach anymore. And what I quote tweeted about you know this the the it was something about ending teachers' unions. And I just quote tweeted by saying teachers who don't want to work should be fired. I think that's a fair statement. If you don't want to do your job, you deserve to be fired. Teachers were hired on to do a job. And so if they don't want to do it, they should be fired. And and part of that job, by the way, by design, is like entrusting your kids to them. It's <laughs> like most parents don't have a choice because because that's the way the system is set up. That your kids go to this place for eight hours a day while you work or do whatever it is that you do during the day, and then you come home. So of course it's not enough to say well they can do virtual learning people aren't set up for that. I mean it's hard enough it's hard enough to you know if you don't have an office it's hard enough to like even respond to emails in a consistent manner. If you don't have like a dedicated work area right if you're if you're like transitioning from going to an office and you know then working working from home. So teachers who don't want to work should be fired. That's that should be the policy going forward. That should be the rallying point, that should be that should be the rhetoric that you adopt because it's come to that because it's come to that if <laughs> and you know what the best part is they're gonna be fine because they can go and get all the jobs that are available right now and they'll still make some kind of money you know I think I was on I think it was on the last episode that I um, I think it was on the last episode that I talked about how like it, that to be a patriot now, and, uh, and, you know, under the Mark Twain formulation, we understand that a patriot loves his country all of the time and, and, and his government when it deserves it. And, and clearly this is a show where I don't love the government. But, you know, I talked about how that's now considered far right. And that might sound crazy. Even just that basic Mark Twain formulation is now considered a far right statement. And and I and, and for as an example of this, I have in front of me here a tweet from um, Evan McMullen. If you don't remember Evan McMullen, he was the guy that at the last minute entered the 2016 presidential rate race to siphon votes away from the Republican Party, right? Because everybody was so scared, so scared of Trump. And you know, I would have been one of those people for the record. I I wasn't too thrilled at the idea of a Trump presidency, you know. I have different thoughts in retrospect, but I, and I you know but I didn't like Evan McMullen, and of course, if you know it, it's it's in his bio that he's former intelligence, which should give anybody pause. but of course, he's now apparently running for a Senate seat in in Utah, which is apparently his state of residence, and he's taking a shot at Mike Lee and calling him far right. He says, unfortunately, far-right leaders like Mike Lee don't see it that way. They think politicians should choose their voters, not the other way around. I'm running to protect our democracy, and I need your help. If you know anything about, if you, you know, if you're not like a tuned-in Politico kind of person, which, of course, a lot of the people listening to this show would be, but just as many of you aren't, you know, Mike Lee is the senator from Utah, and... If you've ever go up, you can go and look up interviews with him or see the opinions that he talks about. He's a constitutional lawyer, I think, or if not a constitutional lawyer per se. I know he's a lawyer. I know he clerked at the, for um, uh, Supreme Court justice. I don't recall which one offhand. So he's a, he's a constitutional scholar in a sense. He's somebody who cares about the United States Constitution, who thinks that the United States Constitution should be the ruling document of the land. And he's very amiable, right? He's not somebody, you don't see him on TV getting into fights with various figures. And, and if you listen to him speak, again, he just seems like, a, he kind of just seems like a nice guy. But Evan McMullen says that he's a threat to democracy. That's the state of American politics. This wasn't a place that we suddenly appeared at. This was a place we were led to. And isn't it interesting that somebody like Evan McMullen is still playing that role, calling, some, calling patriots far right? What does that mean? I know what that means in a pejorative sense, right? We've, we, our whole lives we've known what that means in a pejorative sense. We know what that means to be an insult, as an insult, which is of course what pejorative means. In a negative sense. I wrote about in conservative stop protesting at Applebee's that patriotism is considered far right. Pay attention to that if you're somebody who loves America. So the next, uh, let's see. Oh, this was cool. So if you don't know, Top Lobster is awesome. He does some really great political art. Um, and I, this was just kind of a cool little thing. He said he was working on a project. He said, who are the four people most responsible for the propaganda over the last two years? And I said, Stelter, Maddow, Cuomo, and Reed. Two down, two to go. Of course, you know, the implication being that Reed and Cuomo, I believe, have both lost their shows. So if only we could get people like Stelter and Maddow off the air. Things, things might get marginally better. From the post-libertarian moment defined this week, we are going to talk about what it is and why it happened. We're getting to the heart, by the way, of the essay. We're getting to the heart of where I see the issues being in this movement that I've considered myself a part of for a while now. And what it is. We are not discussing a movement of people. I am not discussing a movement of people. Oh. <laughs> Despite my, despite my best efforts, it might turn into one. But we're, we're talking about a moment. That moment occurs when in the face of lockdowns, a libertarian sees dogmatic professions of faith and popular democratic political strategies as insufficient methods of stopping government and corporate tyranny. That is the post-libertarian moment defined. So let's work our way. I'm going to spend some time. We're just going to try and break this down. I might repeat myself in the, in the body of the essay, but I want to focus on the beginning part of this, the post-libertarian moment to find because this is the thing. This is my contention. That moment occurs when, in the face of lockdowns, a libertarian sees dogmatic professions of faith and popular democratic political strategies as insufficient methods of stopping government and corporate tyranny. See, we can't calibrate, we can't, we can't interpret the world through the lens of authoritarian and libertarian on the two ends of the spectrum. We can't, that's not the time, we don't live in those times anymore. Those aren't the bounds that we operate, that, that's not the out of bounds anymore. We've expanded beyond that. We're now basically in the realm of tyranny versus order. Or tyranny versus peace, if you will. Because make no mistake, there's a war afoot. Despite whatever is going to happen in in Russia, and in Ukraine, there's a, there's there's a war afoot. Listen to listen to Donald Trump and President Biden. They both say the same thing. We've been at war since 2020. We've been at war with this virus. It's what they tell us. So in the face of lockdowns, the lockdowns that were imposed in 2020. Are it is the catalyzing effect. That is the thing that should have woken you up, if it at at the time. So when in the face of lockdowns you realize you can't just yell "taxation is theft" and hope everybody agrees with you. Listen, I have a, I have a "taxation is theft" pillow on my couch. Like, you know, it was it was given to me as a gift. I like it. It's fun. It's probably, it'll be somewhere in my house for the foreseeable future. So it's not like I don't like the phrase. But in the face of lockdowns and people complying with the lockdowns, more importantly, to think that Just saying, well, you know, taxation is theft or the government is bad or this would all this would all work itself out if we had a libertarian order. This academic discussion is insufficient. It's not going to win people over. In the second place, popular democratic political strategies. Now, that is a little bit clunky and that's by design. A popular democratic political strategy relies on winning over the majority of people. And majority of people, in terms of the United States at a national level, is, you know, if we're going to take the population at large, it's somewhere over 160 million. If we're going to take, you know, I think the number of votes that are actually cast, whatever that number would be. See, we've seen and I've, I've written this this has been written about at beenawake.com you can go and find the article. the, net, the headline might come to me as we sit here. but I, but what I, I tried to do, oh is liberty popular is the name of the article And is an in is liberty popular? I just point something I point out a couple of data points that happened recently that show large-scale democratic political action isn't going to be the avenue forward. Not to say you can ignore it. Not to say you shouldn't pay attention to the people that the major parties are putting up for those positions. Not to say there's no use in primarying certain people. That's not what I'm saying. But, in or, but, for, but for what we're trying to do, the libertarians of the world that I've considered myself a part of for a long time now, but for what we're trying to do, a popular democratic political strategy is not a good idea to the extent that it works, you're going to need some help. And specifically, this would be running somebody on the LP ticket just on the precisely for running a libertarian in 2024. It's insufficient to stopping government and corporate tyranny. Not to say it won't have a small effect. Not to say people's minds won't change. But if we look at recent elections, we see that Governor Newsom, Newsom was reelected in California despite all the horrible things he did to the California people. Justin Trudeau in Canada was reelected without any kind of changes in his parliament. I think it was like one or two seat, one or two seats actually changed hands in the parliamentary elections. And the People's Party of Canada, Maxime Bernier, who, you know, by all has done the yeoman's work of trying to build a political party in a Westminster model. And by the way, that's an important distinction if we're talking about it from a political science perspective. There is an important distinction between a third party in a Westminster system and in a repu- in the system of a republic in a winner take all like we have in the United States. It's basic politics. You know, if you're a libertarian, you just pretend that doesn't exist. I know I did. But so Justin Trudeau is still the prime minister of Canada. Gavin Newsom is still the governor of California. I have hope for the, for the record, I have hope for the, um, for the House of Representatives. But you see, the House of Representatives isn't done at a statewide level. The House of Representatives is done by districts. So there's, so there's a better chance. See, even when I was in the Libertarian Party, I, I wouldn't really consider myself a part of it anymore, Although I'm happy to work with people you know good people in that if they if they want help or advice. see even when I was like thinking about that I, I made it very clear. I made it very, very clear that I was only interested in I, I thought the libertarian strategy should be at the county level and below. I didn't I don't even think in most cases that a state rep would be a good use of the time. And I still believe that by the way. I think, in general, people who want to fight against the tyranny that we are facing should not be looking to national elections as their salvation. Because that's what the progressive mindset has trained us to do, is look to the the national elections as the means for our salvation. No one can be a post-libertarian. Most of the people, not all of them, but some of the people who are called post-libertarians go by the name praxian because their concern is not spreading a message but achieving results this is to say without application there is no point in theorizing what a perfect libertarian world would look like nor is it useful to that perfect libertarian nor is it useful to use that perfect libertarian world as a baseline for determining right and wrong by the way, there is no encompassing Praxian solution. And and to the extent that the Praxians can be considered a group, they are not monolithic. The authentic expression of being post-libertarian has been weaponized by those who would pretend the world hasn't changed since 2008. Let me read that sentence again. The authentic expression of saying, maybe I'm post-libertarian... Maybe I've realized that there are some there, there are, there are um, deficiencies in these ideas that I believe in. Maybe they need, in my case, what I would say, maybe they need to be updated. Maybe they be, maybe they need to be looked at with a skeptical eye and see what needs to stay and what needs to fall away. But the authentic expression of these ideas, of this sentiment of this moment one has, have been weaponized by people who are pretending that the world hasn't changed. Given the power of the post-libertarian moment, because there's a power there. That's one of the reasons why people are scared of it, by the way. It's because it's powerful. It's powerful. It's actually empowering to realize that you've gotten something wrong. Because that means you can still get it right. You're not blinding yourself anymore. You have the opportunity to become greater than you were. Because of the power of this moment, because of the importance of the times that we find ourselves in, I dare say, the Praxians have inserted themselves in the center of libertarian discourse in less than a year. LPMC members, agorists, professional economists, and other high-profile libertarians have all taken turns criticizing the moment without understanding what it is. So my dear friends, if you hear anybody out there talking about the post post-libertarianism and they're not talking like this, they don't know what they're talking about. And by the way, you can disagree, right? But at least being honest with what the moment is and to the extent that people identify you uh, use it as a placeholder, if you're not if you're not understanding it in this lens, you're not understanding it properly. Again, better sense making is what I do. I don't bother, I I don't need to take shots if I can if I can understand the world in a better way. I don't need to. I don't need to speak out of turn, and do ridiculous, horrible accuse and le- levy horrible accusations at people. Because I'm lazy and I don't want to do any. Because because you're lazy and you don't want to do any research, which is what a lot of the people are were doing around it before this essay was released. So let's talk about why it happened. One does not need to reject libertarianism in order to, see, in order to see that there has been a dulling of rhetoric. There are libertarians who would defend government lockdowns and vaccine mandates. There are people who call themselves libertarians who would defend the rioting of 2020. There are even libertarians out there who would call themselves socialist and not think that that's a contradiction in terms many of these people that I'm talking about actually operate within the Libertarian Party. The LPMC's takeover, the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus's takeover, is an attempt to change this. The goal, their goal, is to bring a principled libertarian message to Americans, to wake them up to the message of liberty. The post-libertarian moment is recognizing how many Americans are already awake and truly never cared? It turns out most people will do as they're told. And turns out people in power have some really dark ambitions. This is to say, modern methods of propaganda allow for a greater degree of social control than what a libertarian may heretofore have believed. The Praxians have arisen out of the post-libertarian moment, united by the mission to, to figure out how to combat this new form of tyranny, where your body may be free, but your, mind isn't, your, but your mind is enslaved. And, of course, how free is your body if you don't have a choice of, you know, what you do with it? See, that's why it happened, and that's what it is. So, again, if you hear somebody else say something different, they don't know what they're talking about. Wh- how do I know? I guess because I was actually talking to people and I was willing to understand a position different from myself. And that's how I find myself in the position I am now, by the way. is just remaining open to new ideas and following, and following the logic where it takes me. So the next piece, the next piece that we got, this is a fun one. We're going to listen to, I think we're going to listen to a little bit of this, just in case you didn't hear any of it. Um, I probably should have put this up beforehand. Um, but so we're so we're going to listen to a bit of the testimony here between that, that Fauci gave. This is, this was a big story. This was published on January 19th. I think it came a week before that. If you want me to do more current event like as it happens, then please go to binawake.com/ donate uh, because that's a direct indicator that I can keep doing this, you know and potentially move this to something closer to approximating full time. So the I'm just pulling up, I'm trying to find the right part here. So the, the following exchange and in the piece, I actually transcribe it for you so if you don't want to uh, if you don't want to listen to it, you can actually read it out. And it's of course, it's good It's good to have that stuff as a reference. That's one of the reasons why I like doing it because it's, it's like something that can come in handy for me in the future. So this is almost an eight minute, this is an eight minute segment that we're about to play, but we're only gonna play a little bit towards the end here. Let's see if we're close. Why is that not coming through the right thing? I actually just upgraded to Windows 11. By the way, so if we're if you're wondering why I'm being a little boomerific right now, there we go.
1: Responsible for the death of five. Like him to be able to respond, please do so. Taking that down To is he said in front of this committee. Do you think your takedown of I was one more time. Here we go. Personally attack me and with absolutely not a shred of evidence of anything you say. So I would like to make something clear to the committee. He's doing this for political reasons. What you need to do is he said in front of this committee... Do you think your takedown of three was, prominent was, epidemiologists was not political? You, you don't want me that to finish you know what I'm going to say. That Senator, was the question. Senator, Were you political we will, in taking down this, right, these three point, prominent epidemiologists? Senator Paul, if you would please, um, I'm going to allow this, uh, the, Dr. Fauci to respond. We have a number of senators yeah. who would like to ask questions, and I would like him to be able to respond. Right. Please do. So th- the last time we had a committee of the time before, He was accusing me of being responsible for the death of four to five million people, which is really irresponsible. And I say, why is he doing that? There are two reasons why that's really bad. The first is it distracts from what we're all trying to do here today is get our arms around the epidemic and the pandemic that we're dealing with, not something imaginary. Number two, what happens when he gets out and accuses me of things that are completely untrue is that all of a sudden that kindles the crazies out there and I have life, threats upon my life, harassment of my family and my children with obscene phone calls because people are lying about me. Now, you know, I guess you could say, well, that's the way it goes, I can take the hit. Well, it, it, it makes a difference. Because as some of you may know, just about three or four weeks ago on December 21st, a person was arrested who was on their way from Sacramento to Washington DC at a speed stop in Iowa. And they asked, the police asked him where he was going and he was going to Washington DC to kill Dr. Fauci. And they found in his car an AR-15 and multiple magazines of ammunition because he thinks that maybe I'm killing people. So I ask myself, why would Senator want to do this? So go to Rand Paul website, and you see fire Dr. Fauci with a little box that says contribute here. You can do $5, $10, $20, $100. So you are making a catastrophic epidemic for your political gain. So the you only have thing politically that, the attacked your can, colleagues, uh, and in a politically reprehensible the only way, thing attacked that I their could reputations. Think of. Okay, you we, won't defend it. No, you won't we'll, argue it. I'm You'll just simply turn around the attack. This.
0: If, by the way, if that didn't come through on the video, it'll be in the podcast and in post. Um, I might be still working out this screen sharing business on Restream. So Fauci, you know, points out that you know Rand Paul has been attacking him. But here's the important part of the exchange, so we're going to read it again for effect. Fauci says, Number two, what happens when he gets out, Rand Paul, and accuses me of things that are completely untrue is that all of a sudden it kindles the crazies out there, and I have threats upon my life, harassments of my family, and my children with obscene phone calls because people are lying about me. Much of the response to this clip going viral in support of Senator Doctor, because he is a doctor, Paul's position, has pointed out that while Fauci is referring to threats against his life, Rand Paul has been shot at, assaulted, mobbed, and I'm sure cajoled verbally on numerous occasions during his tenure as Kentucky's junior senator. Caught up in the blood sport of political theater, emotional condemnations of Fauci miss a very important element of the story. See, when I tweeted this out, I included the, um, I included the commentary of, of, you know, some podcasters, media personalities think that Fauci is finished and nobody will be happier than I, if the guy actually gets what's coming to him, if he gets to, if he gets put on trial. If the things that Rand Pauler says are even like half true, this is, by the way, this is actually a worthwhile thing. This is something I do when, and most of the time when I'm listening to a story, even if it's from somebody I trust is i walk myself through a mental exercise and i say okay let's let's say for more than likely 100% of this isn't true right cuz 100% of anything like cuz it's almost impossible to get 100% on anything in in reality right yeah okay i guess like a simple math test or something but you understand that's not what we're talking about especially when we're dealing with complex social phenomena maybe that's a better way of putting it and under the under the category of complex social phenomena it is rare that you achieve 100% in any in any sort of way so to the extent that somebody is speaking at one point in time um 100% of the things that they say might not be true now you know for this show it's 99.99%, right so you know that's pretty cool <laughs> but in the especially in the case of political rhetoric right we can understand this so what i say what i put the frame i put myself in is i say okay what if 20% 80-20 rule let's keep it simple What if 20% of what this person is saying is true? And what if it's like the only, like, what if it's the worst 20%? Or what if it's the, like, not so bad 20%? And so if what Rand Paul is alleging, no medical advice here, by the way, I don't do that. I'm not a medical professional. I am merely a sense maker trying to help people understand the news better. hearing we have a number... If what Rand Paul, as a doctor and as a senator and as somebody whose job it is to look and oversee these things, if he's finding a money trail, let's say, that starts with Fauci and ends where this virus was developed, if the type of funding that was around it supported the research that made something like this more dangerous, let's say 20%. Say if that's the only part. Forget the other stuff. Forget forget any intentionality. Forget any like larger plans around like I don't know CEPI or other you know initiatives that try to get people vaccinated. Nothing wrong with that. Let's say just let's say just the few things that Rand Paul was talking about. How about the in, the in this particular exchange? What he's doing is he's pointing out the fact that Dr. Fauci used his platform to besmirch. His, co- his colleagues from respected medical institutions who disagreed with the with the opinions of dr fauci and of course in many respects given that he's a member of the one percent right highest government paid employee top one percent of wage earners given that he's part of the one percent you know maybe we should put a little more scrutiny on somebody like fauci and certainly it can be said that we are living under the um we are living under his decisions in many respects he's 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 had a central role throughout all of this oh and you can obfuscate and you can point to things like the cdc and the fda as he'll do on multiple points in time but that doesn't change the fact that if that when there is a face for the government response it is his so if you get caught up in the blood sport and by the way i understand that it's not that i don't feel that myself Right, It's not that I don't feel that blood sport of, yeah, get him, Rand, rhetorically take down his arguments and show him for the fraud that he is. Of course I understand that. Of course I feel that. I'm just trying to go deeper with this article so that you can understand what's actually taking place. So to understand the deeper level of this exchange, you must take into account three things there is a symbolic ref- element to all political rhetoric. Number two, Dr. Fauci's response was prepared in advance. He didn't come up with that off on the fly. He had the piece of paper ready to go. This was a prepared response to Dr. Paul's questioning. So number one, there is a symbolic element in all political rhetoric. Number two, Dr. Fauci's response was prepared in advance which means that there was some forethought as to what was said. And number three, most importantly, Dr. Fauci's response had the intended effect. The thing that connects these three points together is victim morality. As I've written about previously, if we take that being a victim has achieved a high moral status and taking offense at minor slights is encouraged, we can infer, or perhaps deduce, that playing the victim, whether accurate or not, so whether, you're, whether you are a victim or not, playing the victim can give one status. Being a victim, therefore, has a currency in certain social circles the way going to Harvard might, or being a Freemason, or a part of, some other, or, or a part of another fraternal organization. By playing victim in this hearing, Fauci gives us an insight into the psychology at play. Rather than address Senator Paul's line of questioning directly, he, deploy- he deploys the tactic of playing victim to the committee and, by extension, the American people. Now, before I get into the formula for playing the victim, it, it is important to point out that this is hijacking a very natural and, in many cases, virtuous way to act in the world. Because, of course, if we look at the grand scope of human history, most humans can be considered a victim. And even in today, somebody is going to be victimized at one point in time or another. Maybe that is, you know, maybe maybe you're the victim of an icicle that falls on your car and like ruins it so you can't get to work. Maybe you're a victim of a far more serious crime that somebody else perpetrates on you. But of course it is good to treat somebody who has been victimized carefully, with respect, and in many instances to try and right the wrong. Again, this is, this is the way I would look at it. So we have to understand that this victim morality—it's not that the—it's not that like the fact that victims exist are the problem here. This is a this is a mind pathogen. This is hijacking your natural sense-making ability, right? If somebody seems if somebody's getting into a fight at a bar, and like the one dude is six foot and the other guy is five foot, people aren't going to be too keen on the six foot guy just beating up the five foot guy. It's kind of it's this natural. It's this natural thing that we have within us. I was, you know, I was reading in um, Brad Weinstein and Heather Hines' new book, you know, the idea of theory of mind and that fairness is actually a part of that. And again, fairness is one of these other things that the progressives talk about. It's another thing that's been pathologized. It's hijacked your natural your natural sense making in that respect. But so we have this innate, like the idea of fairness is actually innate in a biological sense because of the sophistication of our minds and we see this we see this replicated in other animals who have not nearly as f- sophisticated a uh, a mind as the humans even in like monkeys you can see this in other animals as well so so that's so that's an important point to make by the way because dealing in absolutes well only a sith deals in absolutes huh? but Like dealing in absolutes in this in this regard is kind of how is is sloppy thinking in my book. It's just sloppy thinking. So the so the formula follows this basic form. Number one, appeal to an authority figure for intervention. For the cases of our argument, that authority figure can also be the crowd at large. Number two, conflate a a rhetorical opponent to a quote real danger. That could cause you or someone close to you harm. Did a little digging on that story that Fauci was talking about, by the way. he The guy wasn't trying to kill Fauci. He was trying to kill the president and Fauci was on the list. Now, I do not encourage people to seek any kind of violence in that means. And of course, this was clearly an emotionally disturbed person. And thank goodness, for the record, that he was stopped in Iowa and that the, and that he was... Who's mentally unstable enough to confess everything to the police and to the feds when they interviewed him. Thank goodness for that. Or else you know what we might have had? We might have had a repeat of when um, Steve Scalise was shot at the congressional softball game because that guy was emotionally disturbed as well. He just thought that the Republicans were like trying to take away health care or something like that. So thank goodness that the guy was stopped. But see, Fauci spins it in this case that the guy was targeting him, and he honestly, he wasn't. Fauci was like fourth on the list. That's just a fact of the story if you look into it. But you have to share an anecdote anecdote personalizing the narrative, which is why he did that in the way that he did. That's step three. And of course, step four is condemning the opponent for benefiting from something that could cause you or someone close to you harm. So Fauci's a political operative. He operates in high levels of the government. He understands the game. You don't get to that level of bureaucracy without having some kind of ambition to you. So he knows very well what he's doing. So he's trying to draw the conflation in the minds of his followers that Rand Paul literally is calling for Fauci to be killed. Which, of course, Rand Paul would never do. Because you know he was assaulted, and that's kind of it's kind of like talking about something you don't know anything about, and when you do know something about it, you really aren't gonna you really aren't going to say things like that to people. Now there are variations to this form that I just went through, but if you pay attention, the structure of the response will you when you pay attention to the structure of the response. You'll notice that this is deployed in all kinds of media spats, in all kinds of social interactions. See, growing up, my parents called this tattling, but today it represents a legitimate means of discrediting your opponent. So what does this mean? It's important to understand that for the supporters of Dr. Fauci, the exchange that we just listened to was a win for Fauci. This is because in politics, the moral edge goes to the person you already agree with. That's what happens in political conversations. The moral edge goes to the person that you already agree with. To reiterate a point I made before, it's also important to understand that there are victims in the world, and naturally we want to help them. The victim morality, however, is not virtuous. To borrow a phrase from Gad Saad, victim morality is an idea pathogen. It takes a virtuous impulse and warps it to serve its own political end. Let me provide some evidence so that you can understand how this is being cut. Because if you're, if you like, more than likely, if you listen to the show, you are inclined to agree with Rand Paul. Because I don't really market this show to an audience that wouldn't. Right? So, like, you know, if you're here, thank you. Actually, really appreciate it if you listen. And you don't and you're not so inclined. And I hope I hope this I hope the tone that I'm taking is such that you can understand what I'm trying to say. So in MSNBC coverage, who's always a great place to go for corporate left progressivism, the headline reads Anthony Fauci tries turning the tables on Rand Paul. The sub, excuse me, the subheader. Rand Paul usually tries to put Fauci on the defensive. At their latest encounter, the infectious disease expert tried turning the table. The entire piece at MSNBC is designed to discredit Senator Paul and build up Dr. Fauci. As the piece says, quote, Instead of waiting for the senator to push new nonsense... Fauci seemed to go on the offensive yesterday, end quote. You might say an opinion piece on MSNBC is going to always be slanted in favor of Fauci, and that's a fair point. That's why I chose it. But NBC, the National Broadcasting Corporation, by contrast, has reporting. And that reporting is supposed to be neutral, right? This is the lie that they feed us, but let's play play along for the sake of illuminating a point. And yet... Even though NBC is supposed to be the neutral reporting, right, this isn't an opinion piece that I'm about to read from, the headline is far more brazen, if you think about it. The headline for NBC? Fauci says Senator Paul's attacks, quote, kindle the crazies who have threatened his life. Subheader. In a separate, tense exchange. Fauci was heard on a hot mic calling a GOP senator a moron. So what they do is they actually combine uh, they combine two stories into one, which is popular in these sorts of things. This headline in particular, but the one before as well, is a clear example of Michael Malice's formulation about how the corporate press is often accurate without being truthful. As the unbiased reporting states, in July... Paul implied that Fauci had previously lied to Congress and was aware of what the lab in Wuhan, China was doing with grant money that came from the NIH. Now, if you're if you're just listening and you weren't reading this like I was and trying to put a story together, you probably missed that last line and the, and the massive amounts of mental gymnastics that went into it. In July, Paul, Rand Paul implied that Fauci had previously lied to Congress and was aware of what the lab in Wuhan, China, was doing with grant money that came from the NIH. The sentence admits that the NIH funded the Wuhan Institute of Virology, that Dr. Fauci was in charge of giving out the money, but that it would be ridiculous to assume Dr. Fauci would have any idea of the work being done there. Here's the point. It's easy to get lost in the argument for your side. It might seem crazy that somebody could still support Dr. Fauci after all this time, but people do. I enjoy these exchanges between Rand Paul and Anthony Fauci as much as the next political commentator, but I try not to get caught up in a political moment filled with charged rhetoric. This is political theater, and I'm there to enjoy the show. You will enjoy the show too more, if at least my for my position, if you stop seeing the show or watching the show and start seeing the production. That's what that's that's the kind of analysis that I'm interested in engaging in. Not just giving you some warmed over rhetoric that makes you feel justified and you are justified to feel the way like to be upset that people like Fauci are in charge. It's not the point. How do, we, how do we actually combat this? How do we actually make it so that somebody like Fauci doesn't get into a position of power? How can we, How can we have a system where there's no incentive structure to create a more dangerous virus <clears throat> for the sake of developing a treatment against it? Sorry. I just don't see the scientific benefit of that. Or I guess even if I could see the scientific benefit, I would say on the outset it comes at too high of a cost. Of course, even saying something like that, by the way, you know, my this channel, this channel I have on <laughs> on the old tube might uh, might not be long for, might not be as long as I wanted it to be. But still, do me a favor and subscribe. I think if more people subscribe, I'll stop getting I'll stop getting flagged so much. So if you want more analysis like this, please do me the favor. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast. Give me a good rating on iTunes and other podcatchers. Go to binawake.com. Subscribe with your email address. Even if you don't, even if you're not a reader, <clears throat> if you are somebody who wants to listen to your news, that's why I do the show. And that's why this is like a fusion of the stuff that I write, the stuff that I tweet, and the stuff that I'm thinking about at any given moment. Something in it for everybody. But if you, but if you subscribe at the Substack, we can stay in touch. Even if YouTube, even if YouTube goes away, if Twitter goes away, we can still stay in touch if you give me your email address at Substack. So please do that and become the free. Couple let's let's end on a bit of a lighthearted note. I had just a couple of the tweets. Again, you can catch these, you can catch these Twitter roundups. I usually send them out Sunday or Monday. We're on like number six at this point. It's kind of fun. Again, you know, this isn't even this is a sampling of the stuff that I'll retweet. There's, of course, going to be more, but I try to save. I try to put the best in these things with little explainers. So this first, this first one is a random retweet that I saw. But it's it's as somebody who's around five nine in height, um, I am tall, <laughs> I, I, and I've experienced this in real life. And the tweet says, "Don't tell me there's no difference between the genders." I'm at five, nine. I am taller than every man I've met who is five, nine. Dating, whether we want to admit it or not, is about selection. And so isn't it interesting that the same height on a dating app profile looks different in real life. Again, I've had this happen where, you know, it's like, oh, cool. We're the same height. And then the girl is like taller than me by, by, by enough, enough that you notice. (laughs) <laughs> it's, you know, it's I actually don't have anything against that per se, but generally speaking, if we look at trends on a, on a, at a population level, more often than not, the man is taller than the woman in most part in most like monogamous relationships that occur. It's, I think it's like eight to eight and 10 or nine and 10 when they've done studies. It's pretty high. So, like I said, at the beginning of the show, I did record on the Blackbird podcast right now, uh, or right now, yesterday, um, it was his first live stream. But I, we talked a little bit in that conversation, and maybe I'll, maybe I'll do a little bit of it here. But um, no, you know what? Because I'm going to write a piece about it, so we'll wait. Uh, so if you want to hear the discussion around why, why I agree with James Lindsay when he says that Marxism shouldn't be taught any at all to children in any form whatsoever, you should go listen to that conversation. It's behind the paywall right now. And like I said, there's definitely going to be a piece written about it. little mindset for you just kind of a kind of a potpourri here at the end. When you accept wishing for things is not enough, you start to see how other people got to where you want to be. So I'll make the point a lot that oftentimes when you're writing or when you're speaking and you're talking about ideas, a lot of times you're, I, I feel a lot of people are criticizing their younger selves. And I feel that way because a lot of the time I'm criticizing my younger self. I do it a lot. Uh, it's it's part of the skeptical process for sure, which me and you know it has its positives and its benef- and its negatives. But this in particular was um, I don't know exactly where I got this from. You could say society. You could say just the spe- you know the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age was just kind of a part of it. But like wi- like there when you're growing up in a way you're you have this impression that wishing for something is going to be enough. Right, and wishing for something in conjunction with like, let's say, some kind of talent. Right, so like, a little kid says he wants to be a scientist or says he wants to be in the NBA or the NFL. He he's wishing for that to be the case. And if you spend your life wishing for things, wishing that you'll be recognized for the for the rare talent you are, wish that you were you know wish that you had the ability to I don't know do a show write. Have the hobby, go fishing every weekend. Go. Uh, what's what's other thing people? What's other things people like to do? People. Some people like to play like intramural sports. When you accept, when you stop wishing for things, you start to see how other people got to where you want to be. So, for example, the young child who wants to be in the NFL, when he stops wishing that he that to be in the NFL. And he starts figuring out what it's going to take to get into the NFL. He's going to start to see how people got there. Training, discipline, working out, being the first guy to show up and the last guy to leave. Same goes for your job. Same goes for any aspect of your life. I've talked before about removing perfection as like my goal. And it's been the best thing for my writing career. Some people will rightfully... <clears throat> excuse me, rightfully in some, in some sense, some people will, you know, like mock the fact that I use punctuation weird or I sometimes capitalize in an odd way. And I've, I've honestly, I've always done that. Um, and it's, and it was like a problem when I was in, when I was like studying in school cause I would have to go back and like make a lot of changes. I've just always kind of, I don't know. It's just, it's, I think, I think in part because I used to write a lot of poetry. And so in poetry, you kind of have that flexibility where you can capitalize things and they have like a different meaning based off how you use capitalization. And I've just encompassed, I've just brought that into my prose. You know, one of the reasons why I keep doing it, other than the fact that I, you know, it's it's I, I'm more concerned with like consistent output is because if you look at most major writers, anybody who's a decent writer or any anybody who pushes the envelope, anybody who becomes something, they're never like the best, the most technically proficient person. Right? So, like, you know, in fact, the, the, the eccentricities are one of the things that, um, you know, kind of make make you different in, in, in respect. Now, that's not to say, now, what I did do was I did stop writing in, like, super complex language, and that's been a boon to my writing career as well. But this fits into the idea of perfection because in, in school, the impression, or at least, you know, rightfully or wrongfully, this was, was, there was always so much stress and anxiety about putting a paper together so I would procrastinate. And then, you know, like I would try and put it together at the last minute in the best way possible. And, you know, in, in general, it would work. But I think because, you know, you're turning it in for a grade, for that final grade in many cases, I think when you're turning it in like that, you know, there's this, there is this uh, desire for it to be as perfect as it can be. And if so, therefore, if you think that everything in your life has to be done perfectly as a, as a consequence of this, and, and again, I would say personally, I, I, I experienced this with writing. I had to cut that out. I had to replace consistency. I had to replace that idea of perfection with the idea of consistency. Because if I'm consistent, people will forgive the mistakes. It's a lesson I wish I had learned a long, longer, long, long before I actually learned it. Because I really didn't learn it until I started this project. But, you know, so just, yeah, again, little mindset, news philosophy mindset. Those are the three things that I try to do here at beenawake.com. So I've been taking shots on Twitter and elsewhere, kind of, I think I talked about this, I did talk about this in the beginning of this episode, at the new base-politics.com for a few reasons. This aesthetic, (laughs) my aesthetic critique of the fact that base-politics just looks awful as a domain name isn't substantive, but honestly the entire concept here is dull. Not because either of them are bad writers or uninteresting, but because of their determination to remake something they know nothing about. The reality is going after larger creators helps my project grow. And it just so happens I get really annoyed by corporate libertarian types these days because they have no incentive to push ideas. And there's seemingly no incentive to even recognize what the people, you know, us, us unwashed masses in the libertarian movement, think. So somebody tried on on Twitter to get me to explain why Catholic monks and nuns are not the same thing as communists. As you can see, I call it in the tweet, communist apologetics. So this guy, I think I'm actually going to open this just for the sake of it. I, I had to mute him because I had to mute him because I because this is exactly the kind of engagement that I would fall victim to at one point in time. Um, so we need to unmute this real quick. All righty. So this is this is additional. You know, this is something that Andrew from Popular Liberty sent out at GOP Mises and he says teaching CRT in kids is child abuse and should be criminally prosecuted. We wholeheartedly endorse legislation to that effect. I would agree. That's the political message. People don't like it. Get out of politics because you're not up for the tech because because get out of politics. Do something beautiful in the world because politics is a dirty business. So the guy responds, you guys obviously are not libertarians if you're calling for locking people up based on what they teach. To which GOP Mises replies, if you're unwilling to prosecute child abuse, then you're as much an enemy as the communists. Wait until you find out how we feel about them. And there's a meme. So the reply is a question, how is it child abuse? Did you know nuns and monks are communists? Vow of poverty, shared belongings, no private property so this person in particular his handle includes the year 1968 so i'm going to make an assumption that that's when he was born and to an extent i can't blame somebody who was born in 1968 for having a really cringe opinion on what communism is and what that looks like so what i responded to him is saying that by by saying that nuns and monks are communists he's committing blasphemy yeah I'm just kind of again if you guys if, if if you haven't heard me say it before i'll say it, here it again I treat Twitter like WWE. I will get into an honest exchange if I feel like somebody is worthy of it or if they respond in such a way that leads me to believe that they are interested in one. But in general, I'm treating it like WWE. It's about making overly grandiose statements to prove a point. If you want the substance, subscribe to the Substack. That's the idea. This is the show. This is, the show is on Twitter. This is the substance. This is the analysis that you come back every single week for. So he tells he says to prove me wrong. I said I don't care enough about you to bother. And he says how to say I can't do it without using those words. To which I reply, if you were born in 1968 and would assert in 2022 the life of poverty and contemplation lived by monks is somehow equal to the life of death and cataclysmic discussion led by communists, I'll leave you to the Lord who has far more patience than I to deal with such nonsense. To which he insisted in replying, so a monk... So a monastery or a convent is not run as a communist economic system. Explain how they are not. You are confusing an economic system with a political system. I'm not confusing anything, for the record. And I, and I said, you're confusing me with somebody who cares what a communist thinks. Of course, I don't actually know if this guy's a communist. But it, 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 it is astounding to me that somebody would bother spending time with this line of uh, inquiry or this, this line of argument, right? So he starts out by talking about how nuns and monks take a vow of poverty. Well, that's not all—that's actually not true. There are some orders that don't take a vow of poverty. Many of the orders of—maybe many of the monastic orders do take vows of poverty, including the Benedictines, who I was raised by, who I went to school with. They take a vow of poverty. And in fact, the Benedictines are the example for monastic life. So I happen to know a great deal about monastic life not more than the experts mind you but turns out one of the experts was a teacher of mine so the common own see it's so it's not actually the case that they don't have private property or that things are held in it is the case that things are held in common ownership in the monastery but depending on what what uh, order you are with there are varying degrees of that and to the point specifically speaking the abbot owns all the po- all- owns all the property the leader of the monastic community is actually the person who controls the purse strings. And in many cases now isn't, doesn't control all the purse strings because there is an institution behind these monastic orders to make sure that they can still operate. Because, of course, the people who are out there trying to live a contemplative life usually have to rely on other people making money to make that happen. And that's, by the way, a good thing. That's, how that's in effect, how things are supposed to work. So no, the monastery and the convents are not run as communist economic systems, because most monasteries and convents have a business model. The business model of the Benedictines is ora et labora, work and prayer. These are the ones that are the closest to what this guy is claiming is communism, and it's not. They have a thriving business, and... and, Generally speaking, there's a few different businesses. They get into some kind of farming, usually there's some kind of teaching involved, or, you know, like brewing. Those are three very common businesses that monastic orders will involve themselves with. So you see, none of that is communist. None of that is communist culturally. None of that is communist economically, you dolt. go through the things that I said. So, so let me make sure I didn't miss anything. I said not every order of nuns or monks live in common ownership of goods. Your standard parish priest earns a salary and gets to own all of his own property like a sal- like a regular salaried employee would and that, ca- that accounts, by the way, for in the Catholic Church, that's most priests are just diocesan priests so they earn a salary, they have possessions the same way you or I do Both com- Now, here's a similarity Similarity. Both communism and Catholicism have universalized views of humanity, right? Their mission is for the world. But that's where the similarities end ideologically. Communism set out man, set out to make man free from his nature. Catholics want to constrain man because they understand his nature. See, these two ideas are not at all coherent. Then there's the tens of millions deads at the hand of communism, which, you know, even the crusades can't even hope to match as a number. See, the symbolism is important. Your rhetoric matters. What, How you say, the way you say things makes a difference. Like, for example, how Neil Neo Gorsuch refused to wear a mask because, you know, they're all tripled. They all have the vaccine. So why would you need to wear a mask? But of course, you know, I guess Sotomayor was upset about that or something. A couple more things. So I can remember listening to Joe Walsh in my car. Joe Walsh, if you don't know, was a representative who was elected as part of the Tea Party movement. And then he had a, um, a stint on Chicago radio having the drive time slot. So I would listen to him. And I actually got to meet him a couple of times. So it's been strange to watch him completely transform from a tea party patriot into a cringy apologist for patriotism. So Joe Walsh says as a white guy who loves this country, that this country needs to have an honest, tough conversation about race. And it's time for us white Americans to do more listening and to feel uncomfortable driving the speed limit, am I right? Conservatives are progressives driving the speed limit. And Pedro Gonzalez from Chronicles Magazine, who's slowly becoming one of my favorite people to pay attention to, he says in response, Joe, I activated Twitter's tipping feature for you because if you really feel this awful about being a white man, then you must pay me, a person of color, reparations to show your sincerity. I'll even send you a receipt so you can show your friends how pathetic you are. We live in a country where the NYPD are arresting children in a museum because they didn't show their papers. We live in a country where Reason Magazine, a libertarian outlet, doesn't question government data. We live in a country where the president says the world must be vaccinated. It's not enough to vaccinate 340 million people in the United States. Like I said at the beginning, people, this is, I mean, going after progressives, going after the president, going, you know, holding, holding truth to power or holding power to account because what's the formulation? The formulation is speaking truth to power as skeptics here. We really should stay away from that kind of rhetoric, but holding power to account is one of the, is, is why I wanted to start writing, giving you a better way to view the news cycle is another. So as long as you'll keep tuning in and sharing the show and letting your friends and family know what what this is about, I'll be here, passing out that better sense making. Go follow me on Twitter, at DLB Muniz.
1: My name is LB Muniz, and I am NOT one with the woke